keeping democracy alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're really seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shootings, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Since Donald Trump opened his campaign for president, he's painted a picture of Mexico as a breeding ground for violent criminals and rapists flooding over the border into the U.S. After all, it is common knowledge that the manipulation of fear Fear of the other is almost always a successful political tactic. We just need to build a wall, a really high wall, to keep that trouble and gun violence away from us. But one cannot talk about gun violence in Mexico without seeing the role of the United States. Most Americans really, really don't know how we are perceived in countries outside our borders. For example, We've had secret wars that are anything but secret to the people who live in those war zones. It's just Americans who are kept in the dark. Same with their role in the horrible, incredibly widespread violence which has plagued Mexico in recent years and may actually be getting worse with the new administration. With the significant help of the American Friends Service Committee, three people with great knowledge of this topic are on a speaking tour of the U.S. called Where the Guns Go?, U.S. Arms and the Crisis of Violence in Mexico. I'm honored to have them with us today in the studio. They are Dr. Uh, Carlos Perez Ricard. How are you, Bert? Thank you very much for the invitation. Well, thank you. Uh, Dr. Ricard has written uh, extensively rather, on arms exports to Mexico, especially from German gun companies and on the history of U.S. drug enforcement in Mexico a professor of political science at the Free University of Berlin. He also co-founded EuroArmsMX.org, uh, a group that monitors and documents the arms trade between Mexico and European countries. And I want to make sure to talk about what the German government has done about the misuse of their guns exported to Mexico. We also have Maria Herrera Magdaleno. Good, uh, thank you for being here. And she's from Michoacan in Mexico. She's the mother of eight children, including four sons, who were forcibly disappeared by police agents in two different events in 2008 and 2010. She and her remaining family members have searched for her sons and appealed to every government agency without results. She began to participate in the movement for peace with justice and dignity in 2011, including participation in caravans of victims uh, and for human rights in Mexico and the United States. Since 2016, Herrera and her family have led three citizen searches for remains of disappeared persons in Veracruz and Sinolia, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, I probably didn't, states that have successfully recovered thousands of bone remains. And John Lindsay Poland is an American Friends Service Committee Wage Peace Coordinator in San Francisco. Thanks for being here. 
Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, he has written extensively on the U.S. legal and illegal weapons trade to Mexico, U.S. policy in Latin America, uh, and all human rights violations in the drug war. He's co-director of the 2017 documentary, which I'd recommend, Where the Guns Go, U.S. Policy and Human Rights in Mexico, and editor of a report by the same name. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And I've heard that policymakers in Washington know that the Mexican state and armed forces are deeply involved in widespread crimes, and also that they've committed serious violations with weapons sold by the U.S., yet since 2012, Washington has sold billions of dollars worth of weapons and military equipment to those same forces. And uh, Paulina Ariaga, executive director of uh, DisarmMexico.org, declares, the U.S. is without a doubt the primary provider of legal and illegal arms in Mexico, end of quote. As American citizens, we should know about the effect of the use of our tax dollars on situations like this. At the very least, selfishly, we should ask if what we are doing is in our national interest. From that perspective, I want to thank our visitors for their dedication to shedding light on this humanitarian disaster, largely unseen by most Americans. Thank you again for coming in today. The title of your speaking tour is the same as the report, Where the Guns Go, U.S. Arms and the Crisis of Violence in Mexico. Briefly, what is the purpose of the tour? What do you hope to achieve? Well, Bert, we um, see this as uh, as a humanitarian crisis that is uh, affecting millions of of Mexicans, and we have a very close relationship to Mexico. We share history, we share borders, we share trade, we share lots of culture, and so for just for uh, humanitarian and ethical reasons uh, alone we should understand what is the impact of the arms trade from the United States in Mexico. So we're hoping to raise awareness of that impact um, to at a human level and also to look at the ways in which uh, we in the United States can uh, exercise more control over an, an industry that is exporting products that are resulting in, in so much suffering. And uh, we think there are things we can do. And in New Hampshire, we think it's, there's some very specific things we can do. Let me agree with you. Uh, I would say that uh, one of the purpose of this travel to New Hampshire and to, and to the United States is to show how violence in Mexico is not only a national problem, but a transnational one. As cons comes from the United States to Mexico and drugs are going upstairs, are, are, are being consumed in the United States. So it's a problem that concerns uh, citizens of the United States as well as, as, as Mexicans. So it's a transnational problem, not merely or not pure uh, a Mexican problem. So it does affect us, given the fact... So it does affect us, given the fact that most of the guns, or a large portion of them anyway, do come from the United States and that it's connected to the consumption of drugs here and you know the supply and demand wherever there's a demand guess what there's going to be a supply and there's a big demand here in the United States and yet we don't seem to be dealing with that at all and if I understand it correctly and I may not the uptick in gun violence and disappearances began at about the same time as something called the Merida initiative the Merida plan what is the Merida plan what is its 
official purpose, is it not to fight the power of drug gangs? So the, the Merida initiative is, is named after the city in Mexico where it was signed between President George W. Bush and President Felipe Calderón in 2007. And the stated aim of the Merida initiative is to fight drug trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's also some other parts to it to create what's called a 21st century border, which I'm never sure exactly what that means. Um, and it's, it's been primarily a military and police approach. Um, and, you know, you said that, uh, you know, that we have a lot, large part of the issue here because we consume the drugs. But the other thing is that the drug war itself is most strongly promoted from this country. So there's this very strange and contradictory um, push coming from the United States, not only in Mexico and other countries as well, in which we are both the consumers and we are the primary promoters of prohibition. And that in itself generates a certain amount of violence because you have an illegal industry which has no way of addressing disputes in a legal manner and so violence is a, is a product of that. Uh-huh, right. um, and then you also have this push to go after criminal organizations in a society in Mexico, which is um, deeply corrupted by uh, drug trafficking and has been tolerant of it. You know, it's, it's a transit country. It's for, for cocaine particularly. Um, and so those two things have just created this pot. But I would add one other thing, which is that you know, we talk about the violence in the in terms of the drug war, which I think is, is very real. But another piece of this does have to do with U.S. weapons. So there's two flows of U.S. weapons into Mexico. There's a flow of legal weapons that are going to government, po- police, and military. And then there's an illegal flow of trafficking over the border of weapons that are purchased at gun stores and gun shows in the United States. And most weapons that are recovered at crime scenes in Mexico, 70% consistently over the years, Mm. have been purchased in the United States and then trafficked over the border. So we can see that, uh, for example, when the assault weapons ban ended in 2004, the U.S. assault weapons ban, um, that then made available to criminal organizations in Mexico a great military asset that they took advantage of. And the homicide rate in northern Mexico after the ex- expiration of the assault weapons ban went up independently of the of fight between the drug cartels. So there's a role of the drug, uh, of the arms trade that is in addition to the ways in which the drug war um, feeds the violence in Mexico. If I'm hearing it right, it sounds like not only is the United States responsible for for the demand for drugs, but the U.S. is also not entirely, but largely responsible for all the guns everywhere, the uh, the the assault weapons that uh, you know we we uh, allow to go out in the streets once again in two thousand four, and it seems that the political will to reinstate uh, the uh, the ban. Is, is, is just not there at present. It's just not there. So short of an, a ban on assault weapons, there's still action that might help the situation. I wonder if somebody could talk about what that 
might be. Because you know, I'd love to ban assault weapons again, but I'm not in charge. So what, what else can we do short of an assault weapons ban? So I think there's a number of things that can be done. Um, one is that the border states, Texas, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, could do more to enforce laws against gun trafficking into Mexico. They can put more resources into it. They can put more political will on it to ensure that gun shops where a lot of these weapons are purchased by straw purchasers um, are more vigilant, that there's that there's more controls over um, purchases that end up being trafficked over the border. It's very difficult to actually stop them at the border because of the level of the, the enormous amount of legal commerce, thousands of right. containers and trucks that go over the border every single day. Um, so it really needs to occur earlier. Um, I would say another thing that can be done, um, unlikely to be done at this point by the Trump administration, is the um, interpretation of a federal law, 1968 gun law, uh-huh. that prohibits the importation into the United States of firearms that are not of a sporting uh, purpose. Mm-hmm. And under the Clinton administration, this was interpreted to mean that assault weapons, semi-automatic rifles and, and semi-automatic pistols, were uh, not sporting weapons. Now, that's, a, that's a, how you define what is right. for sport. Is a, is a very, it's, a, um, it's a social debate. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, as a society, we need to engage in that social debate because increasingly the gun lobby has said, no, these are sporting weapons. But we know that m- many weapons that are purchased in Texas are not for sport unless you consider the work of the cartels mm. as a sport. <laughs> so this is a social debate that we need to have that is 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 the basis for legislative decisions because legislators yes they are under the control of the NRA they're under the thumb of the NRA although i would say that in the most recent election there were a number of state outcomes um on propositions that were in favor of more gun control more uh, sensible gun gun, gun violence prevention yeah. um but that i think that's something that we also need to engage in here Interesting. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is called Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about uh, the situation in Mexico, which uh, drugs and guns, it's a, uh, it's a bad mix. And money, tremendous amount of money is involved. I mean, what, you know, I wonder what, the, the opportunities for making money in, in legal ways, uh, it's got a pale compared to uh, the profits that can be made from, from the drug trade. And and the gun trade, I, I just, uh, that's got to have a lot of appeal. I mean, people need money. People need money. So, you know, are there economic opportunities? And I wonder about, you know, some of the U.S. policies like like NAFTA, for example, is, is brought wages down. There's this whole race to the bottom. And, you know, a lot of, I don't know what the level of poverty is in Mexico. I have no clue. But my sense is it's probably pretty attractive to you know, go into the drug and or gun trade. Uh, perhaps uh, she could comment on that, Ms. Herrera? And we, we do it through an interpreter. She's, uh, I guess... So, so what's the question again, Bert? Well, basically, is how much of, a, of an attraction is the drug and gun 
trade in Mexico in terms of uh, you know people having other opportunities for money in other ways. Desde luego que esto es muy tentativo porque en México pues um, hay muy poco empleo. It, it is certainly a temptation because in Mexico there's very little employment. Right. Pero también somos conscientes de que las armas son totalmente destructivas. But we're also conscious that weapons are completely destructive. Yes. Y que han sido la causa de la tanta muerte, tanto dolor, sufrimiento en todas las familias. And they have been a source of a great deal of pain and suffering and damage in our families and communities. Yes, Lo que nosotros vemos es el interés enorme que tiene Estados Unidos para hacer llegar estas armas a México. We see the huge interest that the United States has in making these arms arrive in Mexico. Mm. Sabiendo que son mal utilizadas, sabiendo que están llegando a manos de criminales, de personas inconscientes. Knowing that they're arriving in the hands of criminals and people uh, with, uh, who aren't uh, well-meaning. Totalmente deshumanizadas. Completely dehumanized. Hmm. Eh, no les importa el, repito, el dolor, el sufrimiento que ocasionan. They don't, it isn't, uh, they don't care the, uh, the pain that they cause. Pero right. lo que más nos duele es la omisión, la colusión de nuestros gobiernos. What uh, pains us the most is the omissions and collusions of our government in this regard. Tanto estadounidenses como mexicanos. The U.S. government as well as the Mexican government. Sabemos y creemos que son los responsables directos de lo que estamos viviendo. We, we know and we believe that they're the ones that are responsible for what we're living through. So the, the government of Mexico, and I wanted to actually get into this certainly, about their either turning a blind eye or actual collusion. Uh, and I, from my research into this, I've seen that there's different levels of, of law enforcement, shall we say. There's federal, there's state security forces, uh, and, and local. And, you know, there's the Mexican military, per se. Uh, how, how much money has the U.S. spent on aid to the military and police in Mexico in recent years? And the report, <laughs> amazingly enough, what a surprise, says that most of the money is channeled to U.S. companies. Please tell us how that works. Pues la verdad en este sentido ignoro la canti las cantidades, ¿sí? The, the truth is I don't know exactly the quantities. Well, yo solo les vengo a hablar de mi dolor, mi sufrimiento y representando el dolor de todas las madres mexicanas, de todos los hogares que han sido destruidos a raíz de sus convenios, de sus acuerdos que tienen entre sí los gobiernos. Um, I'm here to talk about the pain and to represent the pain of thousands of mothers like myself who suffer as a result right. of the agreements between these governments. Well, tell us about that, if you would, please. I mean, there's this movement that you're involved in 
uh, for peace and justice and dignity. Uh, and some in the movement have said that the war on drugs is just a smokescreen. Of course, I'm very curious about that. What was meant by that observation? How is the war on drugs a smokescreen? And it sounds like there's real collusion uh, and, and that the, the government uh, is part of the problem. Maybe, maybe before, before giving sure. uh, Maria a uh, voice, uh, she's mother of, of four people which were disappeared I know, I by, by local police. So, so it's, it's very interesting to, um, to hear her testimony and what she has to say. Before doing that, let me explain you a little bit uh, what we think about uh, the, the, um, the situation in Mexico in which what we have in front of us is the capture, the capture of these states. Uh, a lot of state institutions, police units have been captured by the organized crime, by, the, by, by cartels, so that these units, these institutions, uh, doesn't serve the public anymore, but uh, private interests. How do how do we came to this situation? Yeah. It has to do uh, with the money yeah, that involves drug trafficking. Without the money of drug traffic of drug trafficking, it's impossible to understand uh, this particular situation. So that in in special parts in Mexico, in Sinaloa, in Guerrero, in Veracruz, where drugs play an important role in the economy under this context of uh, little employment, uh, a lot of inequality, a lot of poverty, uh, drug trafficking is, is maybe the, the, the biggest and, and the most important way of, of uh, becoming sure. some money. Right, of course. So uh, many local police are, are corrupted, are being corrupted by these, by these um, traffickers. And it's, it's possible to say that nowadays, uh, in, in many parts of the country, the difference the border between organized crime and state is difficult to define. So, we will go to this later on, but when you sell weapons, arms, to the Mexican state, or to particular units of the Mexican state, you may be indirectly, the, quite indirectly, sending these weapons to the organized crime or, 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 or to the traffickers. So, uh, but I, I think we will go to this later on, uh, before maybe hearing the testimony of uh, of Maria. Sure, and I do want to hear about, and this is something that I think most people are not familiar with, the whole idea of disappearances. It's not uncommon, unfortunately, in the good bit of the 20th century and still way into the 21st century, people get disappeared, and they often turn up dead. Who? How does that happen? I wonder if Maria can... I'm sure she can tell us about the disappearances, having lost four children. Who? What are the disappearances about? Who is doing it? Is and is there is there any prosecution of it? You've just tuned in. Bert Cohen here. We're talking about uh, the drug war in Mexico, the guns, and the part of the U.S. Maria, are you Bien. able to? Uh, um, antes que nada, gracias a todos los radio escuchas. First of all, I'd like to thank anyone, everyone in the listening audience. Eh, solo quiero decirles que soy una 
de las miles de madres mexicanas y estoy aquí en representación de México para decirle la realidad que hemos estado viviendo en nuestro país. First of all, I want to say that I'm just one of thousands of mothers who mm. is here representing the reality through which we're living in my country. A raíz de la iniciativa Mérida, as a result of the Mérida initiative, que llegó en el gobierno de Felipe Calderón Hinojosa, which was brought, uh, brought into being during the government of Felipe Calderón mm -hmm. Hinojosa. Se militarizó el país. Uh, he militarized the country. Llegó a las calles el ejército, la marina. Supuestamente se nos dijo que para combatir al crimen organizado. The army and the marines went into the streets. Supposedly they told us to combat organized crime and drug trafficking. Lo que pasó fue que empezó la desaparición y la agresión a nuestros derechos humanos. Porque miles y miles de mexicanos y mexicanas han sido desaparecidos. Thousands and thousands of Mexicans have been disappeared, both men and women con la intervención del gobierno With the involvement of the municipal the, estatal on the, on the federal municipal and state levels why why would, why would they do that it's just it's so unimaginable that the governments would be disappearing people why do they do that let me let me maybe explain you some some context about this 90% of uh, every delito uh, of every of, of our crimes stays with impunity so Only maybe to give you a, a short answer before letting her continue, they disappear because it's possible to disappear people. Because migrants that try to come to the United States are being kidnapped and because they don't have any, any, any entity of the government that can help us, that, that can help them, it's possible to, to disappear them or people that own a, a small shop in, 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 some, in some town if they don't pay the, the protection they have to pay, they get disappear. Or if, if you are a woman that, are, is, uh, that uh, you are on the street and you are not protected by anyone, then uh, you, you could be uh, a victim of, of disappearance. So uh, giving you a short answer, uh, they disappear people because they are allowed to, because there is no police which, which will be enforced the law as they are supposed to enforce it. I, I'm just sitting here in stunned silence because its I just can't imagine what that must be like. No, and to lose four children. I, I wonder if Maria can, uh, can talk about that a bit. She's, uh, I guess that's part of the job here of you all is uh, telling the story about this. Claro. Hubo momentos en que ni yo misma entendí o entendía la magnitud del problema que se estaba viviendo en México. I myself didn't understand the magnitude of the problem through which we were living in Mexico. Mis hijos desaparecieron en Atoyac de Álvarez Guerrero, Jesús Salvador, Raúl y cinco compañeros de trabajo, 
trabajaban en equipo. Um, two of my sons disappeared in Atoyar de Alvarez in the state of Guerrero. My sons Jesus and uh, Raúl. Raúl and five of their um, compan work companions. El 28 de agosto the, del 2008. The 28th of August of 2008. Inicié una búsqueda por mi cuenta uh, con familiar y pensé que pues pronto los iba a encontrar. I started a search on my own with the help of family members thinking that I would find them quickly. Porque yo no entendía lo que estaba pasando en mi país. Creí que era la única persona que estaba viviendo esta tragedia. Because I didn't understand what was going on in my country. I thought I was the only one who was living through this tragedy. Después de un año ocho meses de buscar a mis hijos, me vi en la necesidad de seguir buscando, pero ya no tenía recursos para hacerlo. After a, a year and eight months of looking, I felt the need to continue doing so, but I didn't have the, re the resources to be able to. Pareciera que el tiempo y todo estaba en mi contra. Seems that time was against me. Porque el gobierno, en lugar de ayudarme a buscar, me ponía trabas. Because the government, in, instead of helping me, put obstacles in my way. Y a los dos años, viendo mis hijos que no había recursos para buscar a sus hermanos, se deciden salir a trabajar y a su vez a buscar a sus hermanos. So, after two years without any result, two of my other sons uh, decided to leave to work, but also to continue looking for their brothers. Debo aclarar que mis hijos trabajaban el oro. My, my sons worked in the gold industry. Durante cuatro años no hubo jamás problemas. Iban y regresaban a casa. En cuatro o seis años. They, they worked four to six years without problems. Y en cuanto vuelven a salir, repito, a buscar a sus hermanos y en busca de, de seguir trabajando para poder seguir buscando, el día que salieron, que fue el 22 de septiembre del 2010, Luis Armando. Gustavo, Jaime López Carlos, que es mi sobrino, y Gabriel Melo Ulloa, esposa de uno de mis nietas, ya no regresaron de nuevo a casa. So, um, the, the day they left on September 22, 2010, Luis, my sons Luis Armando and Gustavo and uh, their... Uh, Jaime López, mi sobrino. Y Gabriel Melo Ulloa, esposo de una nieta. Um, Gabriel, the husband of, uh, of my granddaughter, um, disappeared. Con esto yo me sentí desplomada y tuve que buscar ayuda. I, I felt, I, I just felt I had, a, a huge weight had fallen on me and I had to look for other help. Con todas las organizaciones posibles, la cual me fue negada. I went to all the official organizations and was denied help. No fue hasta que surgió el movimiento por la paz, con justicia y dignidad, 
que encabezó el poeta Javier Sicilia. It wasn't until the movement for peace with justice and dignity um, headed by the poet Javier Sicilia that we found support. And how do, I mean, listeners, I wish you could see Maria. I mean, imagine, I can't imagine losing four of your children. I, I just, it's quite a motivation to action, that's for sure. And I wonder about this, the progress, I mean, the, the forces, the political forces in favor of keeping the, the structure, the, the, the system of disappearances alive, obviously is, uh, is pretty strong. And fighting that must be exceedingly difficult. And how are most people... But is, is the fear of being disappeared yourself so powerful that people are afraid to, to speak up and to join in the uh, peace and justice and dignity uh, movement? How, how much fear is there? This is tough stuff, you know, when the U.S. is not... Not, uh, without guilt here. Repito, fue hasta que el movimiento por la paz, a raíz de la desgracia del hijo de Javier Sicilia. So um, the movement rose up because of the disappearance of the son of Javier Sicilia. Ah. Él nos organizó, nos convocó. He called us together and organized us. A todas las víctimas del país. To uh, calling on all the victims of the country. Y realizamos juntos caravanas por el norte y el sur del país. And we um, did uh, car caravans um, in the north and the south of the country. Fue ahí donde me enteré que habíamos miles de madres mexicanas sufriendo este terror. And that was when I realized that we were thousands of Mexican mothers suffering Great. through this terror. El movimiento nos dio visibilidad. The movement gave us visibility. Nos formó, nos fortaleció. It uh, formed us and strengthened us. Para poder presentarnos ante el gobierno y exigirle. But, uh, to be able to go before the government and demand. Mm. Por todos los medios que nos ayudaron a buscar a nuestros hijos. That they help us through all possible means to search for our children. And have they? Is there, uh, is it still in the, well, I wonder how far along it's gotten. I mean, it, it sounds like there's been very little, if any, prosecutions. No, and, and, uh, no, lo han hecho a su manera, porque hay un cúmulo de expedientes, son 18 o 20 tomos. Es, es un sinfín de papeleo, pero... There are piles and piles of papers 18 to 20 books with all the cases that have come before them. Um, Pero I, I want, sigo con mis brazos vacíos. But we go away with our, our arms empty. Hmm. You know, Bert, you asked about uh, fear. And for me, from the United States, I, I want to say something about what we can learn from the movement for peace in ah. Mexico and the movement of disappeared families. Because... You know, there's a lot of fear in this country. Oh, it's so and, effective for politicians to use uh, it, yeah. Well, and they also feel it. And I notice how this fear drives so much action that is really 
not very courageous would be the nice thing to say. <laughs> and when I have been with relatives of the disappeared in Mexico and when I have seen people like Doña Maria and Javier Cecilia and many other family members who are taking such risks in part because they've incurred, they've, they've experienced such pain. And I think, well, you know, what is the risk that I'm facing here? Right. Sure, it's conceivable that there could be a terrorist attack in Portsmouth tomorrow and you and I could lose our lives or our family members could lose our lives. But you know, the risk is pretty small. Yeah. And if we are always acting based on the worst case scenario, the thing that conceivably could happen in this world, and therefore we have to arm ourselves and fortify ourselves and put armor around ourselves right. to protect ourselves against this imaginary threat, we will never stand by the side of people who are suffering from the weapons that we ourselves are creating and sending to people to use against people when we know they're committing crimes. So for me, that courage has to do with standing by the side of people, but also saying they're politically here. There are things that are more important than a very, very low probability threat of certain kinds of attacks compared to what we need to do in our own relationship with our neighbors and the people whom our actions are impacting. And yet, you being in Mexico and taking on what appears to me to be the bad guys, uh, you're moving beyond the risk of being in a little town and a terrorist attack here in America. You're putting yourself at risks a little bit here. I mean, there must be some degree of fear that you have to face up to and go through. I mean, there's got to be people who don't like what you're doing, and these are kind of nasty people, I would guess. In the in the last few weeks, uh, two partners of the movement uh, of Maria have been killed. A very well-known journalist, uh, Javier Valdez, who has been working with them uh, very closely in the past, was killed in front of of his uh, office. But let me try to frame uh, the, cons the, the context for your listeners and for the people who are listening to us today. Uh, what what which the link between the Mexican situation bec be between the disappearance of, of these people and the guns exports? Because that, that, that's what we are talking today. No? Yes, good. The, the, the sons uh, of Maria were disappeared by the local police in Veracruz by the police, by, by, the, by state institutions. The 43 students in Ayotzinapa Guerrero, a well-known case, yes. were kidnapped by the local police too. Those 43 in September of 2014. Exactly. Kidnapped by the local police. By police from two different states in Mexico. The, the first disappearance of uh, her sons happened to be in Veracruz. And the, in Veracruz, and the and the and the second disappearance in Guerrero, or the the first in Guerrero and the, and, and the second in Veracruz, sorry, as well as the 43 in Guerrero. So we we are speaking about two different municipal police, right. local policies. Well, to both regions, the United States, Germany, and other countries or companies from these countries have been selling weapons to these police to its units. It's almost impossible to prove that weapons 
that these same weapons from Six Hour or for Heckler and Koch or for these companies were used at, at, at the moment of the disappearance of, of, of the Sons of Maria. Sure. But it's, 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 it's probable. And since 70% of every uh, gun homicide is, 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 is um, the responsibility of, of, a, of an American weapon, right. it's possible that they suffer, uh, that they were kidnapped with the using these uh, arms. So if we... What do they, do? sorry to interrupt, but what do they do with the kidnappings? What does that gain them? I don't really understand that. Well, in the case of the 43 students, yes. um, the army in Guerrero uh, is, has a close relationship with the heroin traffickers. So a lot of the heroin that's consumed in New Hampshire is produced in Guerrero. And a lot of it comes up on passenger buses. And the students had commandeered a couple buses a few days before the attack on them in order to go to a protest not knowing what was on the buses. Oh. The army got a call from a drug capo who said, you have to recover what's on these buses. The attack on the students that night was focused on those two buses. There were, there were six buses in, entire, in, in total, uh, two of them with the students and one that looked like that that was also attacked, that did not even have any of the students on it. And... What journalists who have been documenting this and have been interviewing this, the drug informants have been saying is that the students saw the police unloading the heroin. Then the students became witnesses and had to be disappeared. So it, it's, it's, a, it's an illustration of the way in which the collusion between organized crime and the state in Mexico, the impunity... The ways in which also you have uh, a, a social movement that becomes victim to this because the lives of the students, you know, they were already pretty much hated by the police because they, they were protesters. Right. Um, and their lives just didn't matter. And that's part of what our message is too, is that these lives matter. Mm. They matter mm -hmm. to us and they should matter to a lot more people because we're connected to them. And how about... Numbers. How many gun-related deaths in Mexico in recent years? I mean, here we've been talking about it for a while, but I, you know, we know about the four. What kind of numbers are there? Of, of so there's about as many. There's more uh, gun homicides in Mexico each year than there are in the United States in a, in a population that's less than half the size, and um, most of those again are with U.S. sourced weapons. So but since 2001, about 110,000 gun homicides and the number of murders that are committed with firearms the percentage of those that are committed with firearms is increasing so the role of firearms in violence in mexico is actually increasing as u.s weapons come into the into the country increasingly and there's a particular deal that concerns us that Let me, before that uh, only tell that to the listeners that this number doesn't include the people that are disappearing but may have been killed a lot of them right. with a weapon. So yeah, and, and we don't know body, exactly so, yeah. which number is it. Maybe twenty thousand, thirty thousand, forty thousand, fifty thousand. There is no a number for disappearance. Most of, uh, and and that's because many of them come from Central America to Mexico, ah. and uh, neither their families nor the authorities have inter. Uh, they have interest in knowing who they are. Right. 
but with the truth that we don't know how many people have been disappeared in the last uh, 10 years. But we know that most the, of those crimes are committed with firearms, most disappearances. But there's a, a particular deal that's relevant to New Hampshire that we well, would like our listeners to know yes, about. Yes, and I did want to get to that. Uh, and and I just it's amazing to me how, you know, since... The Nixon era, I think it was, you know, we've been at, there's been a war on drugs. And it sounds like it's not, it's made, it's only made things a lot worse, a lot worse. There's more drugs, there's more violence. It's just, uh, you know, making a war on it when it, when it's a crime. And yet here we are making the weapons and a good bit of the weapons are legally sold to Mexico. But let us talk about the New Hampshire connection. And this goes out beyond New Hampshire. But we have something here called Sig Sauer, which employs, I don't know how many people, a fair number of people. Uh, Tell us about how Sig Sauer, a gun manufacturer, relates to the situation in Mexico, please. So Sig Sauer has been exporting weapons uh, to Mexico since at least 2007, at least as far back as 2007. Um, and these weapons um, are uh, sales to the Mexican military, which then distributes the weapons to the, the, the military itself as well as to federal, state, and local police. Mm-hmm. So it is the central distributor of these weapons within Mexico. And uh, two years ago, uh, Sig Sauer uh, license, signed a deal with the Mexican military that was licensed by the U.S. State Department for $266 million worth of firearms. And that license is good through 2024. Now, we know that in the last few years, particularly, Sig Sauer firearms, both rifles and pistols, have been distributed to police in states with very serious problems of collusion between police and organized crime. That include Veracruz, that include Tamaulipas, which is where one of the human rights defenders was just killed 10 days ago, that include uh, Michoacan, where Doña Maria is from, uh, a number of states where these problems are. So we know that the weapons are going places where where crimes are being committed (laughs) by the state. Um, And this deal, is it's, it's unprecedented. I mean, it's that amount of weapons... Just to give you an idea, the average in the last few years of firearms from all producers in the United States exported legally to Mexico has been about $20 million or so. dollars. So this is just an, an enormous deal that has a huge impact uh, on uh, the, the amount of weaponry that police and the military will have in Mexico. This is in, you know, under the framework of the drug war. Yeah. Um, but it has so many other impacts, of course. It's not, uh, if, if it were being used against uh, tra- drug traffic, that would be one thing. But it's, it's being used in so many other ways because, as Carlos said, um, if you're a member of the police or if you're a member of organized crime or both, you can commit a homicide, and the chances are very, very high that you will never even be investigated. Wow, this is powerful stuff. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, some people who are traveling throughout the U.S. trying to awaken us to what we can do, what the problem is in Mexico. And we've heard the term crimes against humanity. That's a big, big thing. It's it's a heck of a charge. 
I wonder if there's some legal definitions of the term crimes against humanity. What is going on by the government, their military police, and I suppose the collusion with the crime world? Does it possibly rise to that level of what we call, what we understand as crimes against humanity? What is crimes against humanity? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, Bert, but um, the Open Society Foundations issued a report this past year called Undeniable Atrocities, in which um, they looked at the level of impunity, they looked at the level of violence, they looked at the level of state involvement, they looked at the level of um, uh, intention in, in these operations, and they concluded that um, these do the the level the violence in Mexico does rise to the level of crimes against humanity. Amazing. Now, um, so a lot of this is is the people are discussing whether to bring this to the International Criminal Court because the uh-huh. Rome Statute is what defines a crime against humanity, and if it is not prosecuted within the Mexican judicial system, then it can be brought to the International Criminal Court in the Hague, and there are a number of cases where I think. People are looking at, well, can this be brought to the International Criminal Court? There's a lot of other elements that go into that. The ICC has not taken up cases in the Americas so far, um, but it, it, by definition, it may still rise to that level. Yeah, I find it interesting how our current president, Trump, still can't get used to that phrase, has stepped up efforts to stop the flow of immigrants from Mexico into the U.S. He wants to make it more and more difficulty and tends to build a big, big wall. It seems like it's somewhat difficult for people to cross the borders, but not so much guns. And I find that just... Uh, the great uh, paradox, uh, yeah. or not, maybe paradox is not the right word, no, but the um, Six Hour Company, for example, donated uh, $100,000 to the Trump campaign and there are really personal relations between uh, Vice President Pence and managers of Six Hour. Uh, ah. the, the, the gun lobby supported also the, oh. the Trump campaign. So uh, this wall, eventually this wall, will only try to stop migrants coming to the United States, but uh, they don't have uh, any interest. <laughs> they haven't shown any interest in stopping uh, weapons coming uh, down to the border. So this is the paradox. Uh, they try to avoid people coming here, but they don't have interest uh, about uh, the, the, the consequences of these, of these uh, arms in, in Mexico. Yeah, it's, it's pretty uh, amazing, really, how hip- hypocritical. You were about to say something. Well, you know, uh, the wall is, um, if built, would have a very destructive impact. But it's a rhetorical device. It's not... Yes. You know, I, I know a writer, Tim Wise, who compared it to, to an opiate because an opiate blocks the receptors for pain. That's what an opiate does. Right. But it doesn't address the problem. If you have a ruptured disc, it's not solving the problem of your ruptured disc. You need surgery. But it will stop the pain from that ruptured disc. And the wall is like that. Because most of the guns that are going into Mexico don't go through the desert. Most of the narcotics that come into the United States from Mexico don't go through the desert. When they go over land, they go through the ports of entry. Because the amount of commercial traffic, that's the priority between the elites of Mexico and the United States, is the commercial traffic. And the volume is so high that you're not going to stop neither guns nor drugs going over the border. It has to be addressed at another level. And in the United States, what we're talking about is treatment 
uh, seeing this as a public health issue, and in Mexico, and addressing the guns as a problem of regulation. That that if if the United States uh, restricts the end users that can receive gun sales overseas in the way that we might restrict them within our own country already, then um, we would have gone a long way towards um, keeping these kinds of uh, instruments of violence from people who are using them against Maria's family and many others. I wanted to, to make sure to ask, you know, not all of the guns come from the United States, from American manufacturers. German arms sales to Mexico demonstrate uh, both how exported arms are used in atrocities and how exporting states can seek to exercise controls. That's from your report. Please tell us about that. What what did uh, what could the U.S. learn from the German example? Okay, uh, a lot, a lot. Um, Germany is a major arms exporter. Uh, the th- the three most export uh, more important exp- uh, gun exporter in the world. And uh, a lot of very important companies are used to sell uh, weapons to Mexico. One of these was the, the company Heckler & Koch. They uh, sent it in the past, in 2006-2007, around 8,000 8, uh, firearms uh, to Mexico, which were distributed to local polices. Uh, many of this, many many of these arms arrived to to local police and were related to crime. Yeah. Uh, when the government took notice of of, of, of this case, uh, they started to prosecute the the company, the German company, and uh, stopped sending weapons to Mexico because the government was not able to say strictly who are actually the right. end users. So they, they stopped uh, sending uh, weapons to, um, to Mexico. And there is a second pr- program that uh, should be also applied by the United States. Uh, since last year, Germany is not uh, selling uh, weapons unless the recipient country uh, destroys the old weapons. So they, they, are, they only sell weapons if the other country right. destroys or burns the old uh, arms so that uh, a proliferation of, of, of weapons uh, will be avoided uh, by, by doing this. So I guess that that should be a program that could be implemented by the, yes. by the United States. Well, I did want to ask, we don't have a lot of time left, what can people do if they're listening to this, if they care about this? Are there specific things that we may suggest our representatives in Congress do? W- what are your some suggestions that people can do about this? Well, first, uh, if people want to get you know more information or documentation or see the film that we've made, you can uh, see, see, look at our website at afsc.org/stoparms. So that's afsc.org/stoparms, and we're particularly urging people to ask their representatives and senators. Um, both to um, institute greater controls on the users, who ends up with these weapons from Sig Sauer particularly, and to respond with a letter to the Mexican government about these recent assassinations of human rights leaders and journalists, um, uh, condemning them, but also uh, calling for an investigation and better protection of human rights defenders and journalists. And that has a big impact in Mexico, even if it's not legislation. So if... um, 
the representatives and both senators in in New Hampshire with whom we're meeting um, would uh, sign on such a letter or initiate such a letter that would make an impact. And money is certainly obscene in politics, but they still need votes. And they, when they hear from people, it absolutely matters. It still does matter. If they recognize that people, their constituents actually care about it, it makes a big difference. I want to thank you all for the work that you're doing. This is an important uh, task that you have. And uh, like everything, you know, it's not easy, but uh, if we keep at it, we can do something about it. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Bert. Yeah.